our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. I feel like I've done a lot of stories recently that bring up the debate of the death penalty. And this is yet another that will leave you wondering, or in some cases, second-guessing the practice. On May 25, 1979, a man was executed in a Florida prison. A man who, as some would argue suffered a brutal last day on earth that did not fit the crime that he committed. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. John Arthur Spenkelink, born March 29, 1949, was a convicted felon serving time at the Slack Canyon Conservation Camp when, on February 4, 1973, the 24-year-old managed to escape his confines and head towards Tallahassee, Florida. Along the way, he found a hitchhiker and small-time criminal named Joseph J. Simankiewicz. Named Joseph J. Simankiewicz. Both men, both criminals, went on a bender and ended up in a hotel in Tallahassee. John left the room to get the car washed and, upon his return, shot the sleeping Joseph once in the head and once again in the back. The following day, he told a cover story to the hotel owner, paid for an extra day, and left with a man named Frank Broom. The body was obviously found, and a week later, John found himself under arrest for suspicion of armed robbery in Bueno Park, California. In his apartment, the one he shared with Frank Broom, was the murder weapon for the unsolved case in Florida. Both men were brought in for questioning and soon returned to Florida and charged with first-degree murder. But John had a story to tell. He attempted to convince the police and the court that the shooting was an act of self-defense that Joseph Simankiewicz had stolen his money, forced him to play Russian roulette, and attempted to sexually assault him. But people weren't buying it. A witness testimony from the co-defendant indicated that John had left their shared motel room, presumably to get the car wash, and returned with a gun. Not just that, but Joseph was shot in the back, indicating that he was not attacking John like he claimed. John had originally turned down the plea bargain to second-degree murder, one that would have resulted in a life sentence rather than execution. He must have had confidence in his tale of self-defense. But despite his story, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death while his co-defendant, who just seemed like he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, was completely acquitted. 
the death penalty by the time John's execution was scheduled to occur had recently been reinstated. It was in fact reinstated the same year of his conviction. He was to be the first man to suffer from Florida's old Sparky since they reinstated, as well as the first man to be involuntarily executed in the United States. John Arthur Spenkelink was led to the electric chair on May 25, 1979, and pretty quickly, things seemed to go wrong. Unlike the executions we are accustomed to to seeing on television, the glass that separates the criminal from the witnesses had its curtains pulled. Those there to view the execution were only able to see John once he was already seated, hood over his head, with just moments left before the first jolt. This caused concern that maybe he was already dead or at least unconscious before being strapped in that corrections officers, according to another inmate, had manhandled and assaulted John during the preparations for his execution. This rumor was further fueled by the prison superintendent who limited visits from family and clergy on the day of his murder. He claimed he feared John was suicidal. An autopsy was not performed after John's death, which was a violation of the state law, because the county coroner considered it redundant and expensive and took it upon himself to make the decision. So, when these allegations began to swirl, there was enough evidence to warrant an investigation into John's execution as a whole. In September of 1979, a conclusion was drawn that, while officers taunted and yelled at John, he was not physically abused. And after John's mother exhumed his body for a post-mortem examination, it was determined that he was very much so alive when the chair was turned on. But from the concerns about John's death came the new practice of not just allowing witnesses to view the complete execution process, but also making sure that an autopsy was performed with each death. And one last interesting fact before you go. Later that spring in 1979, the cell in which John spent his final days, would soon find a new occupant, Ted Bundy. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on May 26th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Morning Cup of Murder. This is a daily podcast that tells you what happened on this day in true crime history. In short, easy to listen to episodes that you can finish on your commute or while you enjoy your morning coffee. So make sure you check back every morning. My name is Karina. I am the creator and host. You can find Morning Cup of Murder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have also set up a Patreon where you can donate a small monthly contribution to the podcast. All those links are in the episode description. Thank you again, and have a wonderful day. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.